Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. to read us God's word today from Acts chapter 17 and I'm going to read Acts chapter 17 verses 16 down to 34 the end of the chapter. This is carrying on from last week's reading. We looked at Jesus the other king and now today we come to Jesus the other judge. Paul you remember has made it as far as Athens. Now while while Paul was waiting for them at Athens His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. 
I wonder, friends, what makes you angry? What upsets you? And and I mean by that, what, what is it that cuts you right to the quick, really presses your button, really makes you sore on the inside? Untidy living room? Is it the way that people speak to you, cut across you, cut across you? The way that you're treated at work? The way that your father spoke to you when you were a small child and the way that you watched him treat your mother? Racism? Injustice and murder in the world? Trafficking of human beings for profit? What, what we see here in Athens, in the book of Acts chapter 17... Verses 16 to 34, what we see here is that the living God and his presence in the world are often misunderstood by the very people he made. And that makes a follower of Jesus angry. It makes us angry. The the, the natural tendency of the human heart we see here, the natural tendency, the inbuilt default setting, if you like the kind of screensaver that descends on human beings, is to create idols, false gods, substitute gods, stand-in gods. To be a human being, the Bible says, to be a human being is to be a worshipper. We will worship something or someone. And we will worship someone or or something as naturally as breathing. That's how we're wired to work. To be human is to worship. The only question is who or what will we worship? Here in Athens, this city, can you imagine it? It is literally filled with idols. You see the description in verse 16. Filled with either images of God or temples or statues or altars. Wherever you went around this city, there was something to worship. That, that, that phrase in the text, full of, it, it has this, it has the more literal sense of being swamped with idols. So that you could almost say that Athens as a city was submerged and barely a city left. There were so many of them around to see. Smothered by them, swamped with them. One ancient writer said that Athens was simply one great altar, one great sacrifice. And Paul's reaction to it, while he was waiting in Athens, what does the text say? He was provoked, provoked, his spirit provoked within him. Another translation says he was greatly distressed. This is a verb from which we get paroxysm, a a sudden outburst of anger or emotion, like an an inner convulsing that overflows, has all the medical associations that we know that come with it of a fit, a seizure, an epileptic fit. It is a strong intensity of feeling, indignation, but rightly so, springing to life for all the right reasons. Often our indignation arises because we've been slighted. Someone's cut across me and most of our anger is wrong but here is right anger like seeing a loved one a precious spouse or a precious child seeing their dignity and worth trampled that kind of emotion rising to the surface in Poland and more than that this same word that is used here for Paul's spirit being provoked it's the same word that appears in the Old Testament to describe God's own reaction to idolatry 
what idols do to provoke him. That's the word, like a a husband returning home and finding his wife in bed with another man. The, The jealousy that arises, the righteous affront to holy love, to covenant faithfulness. Paul, you see here in verse 16, he's being like the true God when he encounters false gods. And the Lord Jesus himself was like this, wasn't he? Face to face with hard heartedness in the Pharisees, face to face with death itself at Lazarus's tomb. Indignation rises within him and he bristles at the evil he sees. You know, I I find this humbling Just this very opening verse, when I think of what makes me angry. God and his presence being misunderstood in his world. God being trashed and a a substitute God elevated in his place rarely makes me angry. It's vital for you and I to see this as we look at this passage that all of this is not distant from us. Paul is not describing here a different world from ours. If you went round Athens taking the open top bus tour, you would have seen Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. We see it all over our billboards, exactly the same thing, don't we? Worshipping wealth, youth, power, sport. You would have seen Ares, the god of war. Military, might is everything in our nations today, isn't it? Artemis, the god of fertility and wealth. Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. Those were the idols of the day, the same as the idols in our day. And the Christian person here, Paul is saying to us, the Christian person is not someone who comes along with formulaic words, pat answers on his tongue, learnt phrases. The Christian is not someone who wanders into great cities and says, God loves you and Jesus died for you. We simply repeat that to whoever we meet, like a parrot, and call it evangelism. The the Christian is someone who learns to look at the world the way that Paul sees the world. Do you remember Paul in Thessalonica and Berea last week? With Jewish people who know the true and living God and have his scriptures, he opens the Bible with them. Let's put this side by side and let me prove and explain. But Athens, a Greek city, a pagan city full of men and women and boys and girls who did not know and love the Lord Jesus. He is deeply, deeply grieved to see their ignorance. And you know, Paul is not in the least intimidated by it. He's not interested in the Oxford or the Harvard of his day, which is what Athens would have been like. He's not interested in the fame and accomplishment and pomp and ceremony and celebrity of his day. If all of it simply functions as a counterfeit to God. I think, Christian people, we can be as easily taken in by fame and wealth and celebrities, anybody else, so that we end up coming to love the same things, idolising the same people. Paul shows us right at the very start here, no, a, a Christian is someone who sees the human heart for what it is, sees our world for the idol factory that it is, and who then feels cut to the bone about it, grieved, indignant. What does idolatry look like in our world today? How much are premiership, how much are premiership footballers being paid every single week on furlough? While nurses working a night shift in COVID infested hospitals are paid what? 
something somewhere in our in our society in our world has gone very wrong hasn't it when politicians debate healthcare budgets and funding cuts to education or policing when sports and entertainment is shelling out money on a grand scale that parts of the world could not even begin to imagine footballers who earn more in one week than many ever earn in a lifetime what Paul does here in this passage is he gets the chance to talk, verses 22 down to 31, he gets the chance to talk to explain the good news of Jesus, the, the true king and the only judge as the only solution to human idolatry. That's what Paul is doing here. You all worship something, he's saying, verses 21 to 23. I can see that wherever I go. I look around your city. It's the same as us today, friends. We can see everybody worships something. And Paul is saying, but your worship is blind and ignorant. And so all he does here now, he paints a picture of the true God in verses 24 to 31. The true God and what true worship of him is like. I want us to simply notice three things as we look at this together. Three things. We live in God's world, not he in ours. Verse 24, we live in God's world, not God in ours. See, what, what Paul's doing here is showing when you arrive in a place where people have not had the Bible, have not grown up with it, are not immersed in the scriptures, what he does is he goes all the way back to the beginning of the world. He arrives in Thessalonica, he can go straight to Isaiah 53. Let's look at the suffering servant. Can I prove to you that Jesus is your king? He comes to Athens right back to the start of the world, to the beginning, to creation. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, these structures you've built. He made the world and everything in it. And because he did that, he owns everything. He's Lord of heaven and earth. People say, don't they, all the time, where is God when I need him? That, that can be the mindset of people around us, as if God is just there when things go wrong in our world, when, when things go wrong in, in my little life. And the prevailing mindset is that somehow we are in charge of the world and we have to account for God somewhere in it. No, it's not like that, is it? Paul is saying God made the world, God made cities. God is in charge of it all. I think here in Athens, it is clear that there is some kind of connection, especially between cities and idolatry. Cities breed idolatry more than many other places on earth. Cities breed idols much more noticeably than the countryside. Athens today is just like most of our major western cities including a smaller city like Aberdeen with all of its history of oil and gas and power and money listen to these words somebody says somebody said this it is easier to be arrogant in the city than in the country in the city you are surrounded by human designs human structures human services Everything is made by man for man with a little more than a twist or a flick. Water flows, temperatures are regulated, heights are scaled, distances are shortened, wounds are healed and square food sits patiently on laminated shelves waiting for its hunter. 
needs are met without much sweat. Escape from snow, rain, heat and wind is always only a few steps away. The city is a grand blanket, insulating its people from the harshest of elements, forcing back the sea and the sky and the wilds. In and of themselves such things are great blessings, but to the unreflective. Constant insulation encourages self-sufficiency. Oh, it's true, isn't it? We start to believe, this writer says, we start to believe that we can do it all through wires and apps. And we've said, haven't we, so many times through this coronavirus crisis, what God is doing is poking a hole, reaching down and poking a hole into our proud human self-sufficiency and the idolatry of our cities the world over. It's been very interesting to watch global reactions, isn't it? As proud men and women try to stand tall and try to look as if they're still in control. You know, a large-scale gospel, the gospel that Paul is preaching, the gospel of the Lord Jesus says, this world that we live in, all of it comes from God, all of it. He made it. He made it. And so any form of religious worship that tries to connect with God through anything we have made, whether it's a statue or an altar, a temple, a song, a phone, a sexual experience, a sporting superstar. No, think how ludicrous it would be, how ludicrous it is that the God who made everything could ever be found in something in the world when he made the world. That's the first point. We live in God's world, not he in ours. Number two, we are dependent on God, not he on us. We are dependent on God, not he on us. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know, where idolatry flourishes, where it takes root, we end up thinking that God is like the household pet. A bit like the very valid and understandable question that many people have had is of where is God in a coronavirus world? Something has destabilized my world. Where's God? God's like the household pet, isn't he? That uh, he's just there when, when we need them, when we want them. Your cat or your dog is dependent on you, aren't they, for food and for shelter. And in, of course, after a time in many homes, the pet just becomes part of the furniture. We only pay it a bit of attention now and again whenever we think they need it. But look what Paul is saying. If we treat God like that, verse 25, if we treat God like that, what an incredible reversal of roles. We think, oh, we'll give God a bit of our money, a bit of our time at Christmas and Easter. Do you think he needs it? No, says God, I don't need it. God doesn't need anything I can give him. Quite the opposite. In fact, all of life flows from him. From one man, verse 26, from one man, he made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God did that with the aim that every person on earth would reach out and find him and learn that we are dependent on God, not he on us. We live in God's world, not he in ours. We are dependent on God, not he on us. Number three, 
We will answer to God, not he to us. We will answer to God, not he to us. Verses 30 to 31. See, Paul's point with all of this, of course, his point with all of this is simply to say, God will not tolerate idolatry forever. He will not put up with it forever. He has been patient with the world he has made as we worship anything and anyone but him. But one day, we will answer to him. One day, God will call time. Bring us into his courtroom. Ask us to give an account. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because Jesus is judge. Look at verse 29. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the ardent imagination of man. Now the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. You know, last week I said one of the main things to say when people ask you, when people wonder why we're Christian. Why are you a believer? How does it make sense? One of the main things to say is to link what we believe to the person of Jesus as king. Everybody gets the idea of following somebody. Everybody follows someone. We all take instructions from someone. We, We take ours, Christian people, we take our marching orders from King Jesus. And what Paul helps us to do here in this passage is to join up the dots in our minds between Jesus being king and Jesus being judge. If we don't meet Jesus now as king, one day we will meet him as judge. And friends, I don't know about you, but I want justice. I want justice. Friends, we all want justice, don't we? Whoever you are today watching, some of you I know, many of you I know, I know your life stories, I know where many of you want and need justice. Countless others I may never meet. But I do know this about you, you need justice. You need it. The five-year-old boy wants it as he watches his sister get off scot-free after doing something and he takes the blame for it. Oh, he longs for justice. The 50-year-old woman wants it as she cries herself to sleep at night after her children have been torn from her, murdered. Their killer goes free. Well, we want justice for George Floyd, don't we? Justice for the broken and the marginalised and the oppressed as we see mobs rioting or the child killer on the loose. People ask us all the time, where is God when a Norwegian gunman storms an island and slays young people in their tents? Madeleine McCann is never found. Where is God? Where is justice? Friends, only the gospel of Jesus as King is able to deal with those kinds of questions. Only the gospel is big enough for that. For the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus as it spreads in the world, the message is not just that God loves you and Jesus died for you, but 
Why did he have to die? What did he die to save us from? For the gospel says judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. One day, friends, the earth will be full of the righteous glory of the Lord of heaven and earth as his justice descends and extends from shore to shore and fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. The worship of anything and anyone that is not God will come to an end. God has guaranteed the justice we want, says Paul here. It is fixed. It is certain. Isn't that a beautiful phrase in verse 31? He has fixed the day. You think of how long people wait for justice. The Hillsborough football disaster, decades of waiting, longing and longing. and When are we going to get our day in court? Will it ever happen? God is saying to us in our world that is roaming the streets, looking for justice, longing for justice. God says, I've already fixed the day. I know when it will be. I've got it in my diary. It is in my calendar. You cannot undelete it. You cannot delete it. You cannot unmake it happen. You cannot take it out. You cannot undo what I'm going to do. It's there. It's coming. It's real. It's more sure and certain than what you think you'll be doing at 9am tomorrow morning. And the reason it is fixed and the reason it is certain. You want to know why it's fixed, Paul says here? You want to know, you want, you want to know how you can know? God has raised Jesus from the dead. There's the guarantee. He has raised the man who will do the judging. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the evidence to our world that there is life after death because that's the question isn't it you say Jesus will judge the living and the dead how do I know how can somebody survive how do I know there'll be judgment after death because God sent his son into death and it came on the other side death conquered sins paid for alive because he is alive and ruling and ruling and reigning he will return as judge Paul says, how do I know there's a heaven or a hell? Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows there is an afterlife. Friends, just take a step back with me again. Just notice what Paul has done. You notice when, when he's speaking here to people who are biblically illiterate, people who, have, who, who, who do not have the Bible, who can't name chapter and verse, never been to Sunday school, never heard about Jesus, he presents the gospel to them on a large-scale canvas, which has three big markers in it. Did you notice? Creation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and judgment. Three big markers. Creation. The arrival of Jesus in the world, his death and resurrection, and his return in judgment. See, what, what it, this is what it takes to take the, gospel, take the gospel from being something trivial that just kind of bounces off people and paints it on a grand scale, the grandest scale imaginable. Paul is saying to the world and teaching us to say to the world around us, God made you and loves you. Your worth and dignity and beauty comes from that oh friends so much of the evil in the world the way that we treat each other and degrade each other and rob each other of beauty and health and dignity is because we do not believe they're made by God other people are made by God no God made you and because he made you he owns you Paul says 
Everything you are and have comes from him. Open your eyes, look around and look at who you are and what you have and ask yourself, where did all of this come from? What is it for? Open your eyes and look around at who you are and what's gone wrong in your life. Look at the world and ask why it's so full of pain and suffering and brokenness. Why is it so fractured and full of heartbreak and sorrow? Is there anyone in the world who can fix it and put it right? The message of the gospel is God made it. I broke it. And Jesus one day will fix it forever. Well, friends, the gospel is not abstract. The gospel is not about religion. The gospel is not for people who like going to church. I could think of a hundred things you might rather do on a Sunday than go to church. The gospel is for people who are scared of death and wonder what is coming next. The gospel is for people who have been brought low and humbled through the coronavirus. People who have lost everything. People who have suddenly realised we are not in control. The gods I worshipped have failed me. The gospel is for people who devote themselves, heart, soul, mind and God, heart, soul, mind and body to the false gods of fame and wealth and health and pleasure and success and discover that they are broken cisterns. They are left empty and unfulfilled at the end of it all. One day, friends, we will all meet the other king. We will all meet him. We can know him today as saviour or know him tomorrow as judge. That is what Paul is laying out here. What you get here in verses 32 to 34, at the end of the passage, what you get at the end, it's just meant to be a little cameo, isn't it, of all the reactions that people have to the gospel to encourage us and help us and warn us. In every age, in every place, among every people group, this is how people respond. Some people mock. Some people say, let's hear more. I'll come back next week. And some people say, I'm all in. And they join and believe. Some mock. Some say, I want to hear more. Some join and believe. Friends, as you watch and listen today, you will know where you are among all those different responses to Jesus. I think you'll know where you are. Paul is saying to us here, wherever you are among those three, make sure you know your response to Jesus is response to the world's true king and the only ultimate judge. Oh, may God make us friends with Jesus, our Saviour and King and coming Judge. Amen.